I'm Megan. I'm Christy. And I'm Auntie B. And we are Homebrew Home Murder, Murder Crew. Crew. Back for uh, part two of our Christmas special. Our Christmas special. Yeah. Our 7 to 12th story of our 12 yeah. days of Christmas. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 12 days of murder. Which, by the way, is rather disturbing how easy it is to find stories out there, like true crime stories mm -hmm. that took place during Christmas. Yeah. Like, I know. Sad. There's a pattern, though. There is it's a, a lot of family side. Yeah, it really yeah. is. It's quite disturbing, actually, when yeah. you sit and, and really look at it. Anyway, boys and girls, weirdos and winos. Kittens and creeps. <laughs> it is time to start part two of our Christmas special. And I'm going to start off with the Lawson family. Mm. Okay. Now, this case is one of our more well-known Christmas time homicides. Uh, and we really should break down this case in another episode because there is so much to it. This case is a family annihilator, Charles Davis Lawson from Germanton, North Carolina. Today, it was Christmas. Charles had planned today out perfectly for his family. He was going to take his family into town and have a professional photograph done of them. Early in the week, he had even taken them out for new outfits. All of this is kind of odd, but very exciting for the Lawson family. You see, the Lawsons were not considered a wealthy family for their time. And having new like outfits and photographs being done were considered a, a luxury. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, because it took like a million years to take one. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You thought etching a sketch was bad. <laughs> <laughs> The Lawson family consisted of Charles and his wife, Fanny. The couple had seven children. Marie, age 17, Arthur, 16, Carrie, 12, Maybelline, 7, James, 4, Raymond, 2, and Mary Lou, who was only four months Shut old. Up, I love Mary Lou. Isn't that a cute name? Yeah. Mary Lou who? <laughs> I didn't even put the well, two together. it's Cindy Lou who. Yeah. Oh, yeah. it is Cindy yeah. Lou who. Yeah, I guess that's true. Okay, that's never mind. I'm not as excited as I Yeah, was. sorry. <laughs> this is such is life. Uh, they did actually have another son named William, but he unfortunately passed away from an illness in 1920 at the age of five. Aww. Yeah. Charles got his family dressed to impressed and got them out the door for their family photo. No one expected what would happen later that Christmas day. The family returned to their tobacco farm in a festive mood. Oldest child, Mary, is in the kitchen making a cake for her family for a Christmas snack. While Mary is baking away in the kitchen, her sisters, Carrie, who's 12, and Maybelline, again, 7, leave to go visit their aunt and uncle, who lived within walking distance. The pair would not make it to the relative's house, however. Their father, Charlie, was actually hiding out back by the tobacco farm, and as soon as the two came within close range, he blitz attacked them. Jesus Christ, Charles. That's not What do you attack them with, you guys? 12 gauge shotgun. Oh my god, I thought you were going to say an axe. I, I was like, so oh too. no. I thought so too. I mean, really? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, not, I guess, not one's better than the other. Not one's no, better than the other. Not. But I mean, at the same time, would you rather be shot by a shotgun or chopped up with an axe? Yeah. Ooh, Which, I don't know. I'm going to have to put some thought these into are the that. Conversations, <laughs> these are the conversations we can only have here. Yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> After he shot both of them, he'd make sure that they were truly gone by bludgeoning them with the weapon. Oh, my God. 
These are his kids. Oh. Charlie was just getting started. He walked up to the patio and shot Fanny, killing her instantly. The sound of the shotgun going off was heard in the house by Marie, who was still in the kitchen finishing her cake. She was instantly hysterical when she heard the shots and went to see what was going on. He wasted no time in shooting his daughter dead there where she stood. Mary was not the only one to be alerted by the sounds of the gunshots, however. Brothers James and Raymond also hear the shots and they attempt to hide from whatever mayhem is entering their home. They don't know yeah. it's their own dad yet. They just know something's up and they need to hide. Mm. The boys tragically were unsuccessful in hiding from Charles. He ended up finding them and shooting them, killing them both as well. How scary though, to be these boys and you're hiding. I bet you anything these guys are hiding, praying and crying for their dad to come help them. And when they saw him, they probably had a moment of relief before. Yeah. Before realizing he's the one inflicting this yeah. Having brutally <clears throat> murdered Fanny, Marie, Carrie, Mabel, James, and Raymond, Charles made his way to four-month-old Mary Lou's room. Oh, oh, there no. laid his innocent child, and without hesitation, he shot her as well. Oh, Jesus if that wasn't disgusting enough, he also took to beating her. One can only be thankful it wasn't with the end of the shotgun, like he did to his other daughters, Carrie and Mabel. Now, that's only six of seven children. What about 16-year-old Arthur, you might be asking? Well, for some unknown reason, Charles had sent him out on an error prior to unleashing this vicious attack against the rest of his family. Why he spared young Arthur was never determined. He would ultimately be the only living survivor of this Christmas Day family massacre. After shooting his baby Mary Lou, Charles placed her body along with Marie, James, Raymond, and Fanny in an arms crossed position with pillows under their heads. He had done the same to Carrie and Mabel, but however, he left them out in the tobacco barn and instead of pillows, he gave them rocks. Oh my god. I don't know what, I don't know why the difference between Carrie and Mabel and with the rest of the family. But... So with Arthur, I think I've read somewhere that like, there's speculation that maybe he sent him on an errand because, like, Arthur was bigger and, and older and he felt Arthur could maybe... I read that as well. Or something I read like that. that as well. That's well, with this being so long ago, too, I feel like this case is this case at this point, yeah. you know? But you never know. Again, we come back to science, bitches. Different accounts of the case say Arthur would come home to find his family slaughtered. However, others say that his aunt and uncle, who were made aware of a shooting after hearing multiple gunshots coming from the lost and home, would stop him before seeing the gruesome scene. I can only hope for Arthur's sake that the latter is the truth. Yeah. Right? Charles Davis Lawson had brutally murdered his family. Armed with a 12-gauge shotgun and a note, Charles went into the woods out back nearby. The note was to his parents. After wandering for a while, he takes his shotgun, targets it at himself, and shoots. <laughs> the fucking coward commits suicide. Of course. Mm -hmm. Right? Like, couldn't just have done that at the very beginning. Like, you had to yeah, take right. everybody else. Yeah. So there are many theories around what ultimately made Charles snap on this Christmas morning. His surviving relatives and friends theorized that Charles had suffered some form of head trauma prior to this horrific incident. And they were convinced that it had altered his mental state and drove him to this unspeakable act. 
I will, however, know that an autopsy was done on Charles. An analysis of his brain found no such abnormalities. And how sickening that you would take your family out, pump them up for Christmas, buy them new outfits, get them a Christmas family photo, knowing that you bring them home to murder them. them. Exactly. There's another theory here which I think makes the most sense Mm -hmm. in my personal opinion. Another theory arose around his relationship with Ola's daughter, Marie. Mm-hmm. A close friend of Marie, Ella May, would later actually come forward and disclose that a few weeks before Christmas 1929, Marie opened up to her about her relationship with her father. She told Ella that she was impregnated by her own father after suffering sexual abuse from him. Jesus. Ella also disclosed that both he and her mother, Fanny, were aware of it. Wow. Yeah. All right. So my next, um, the next case that I'll be covering is uh, the Christmas Eve Santa Claus murder in Covina, Los Angeles County, California, USA. So on Christmas Eve night, 2008, the Ortega family was gathered at the home of Joseph and his wife, Alicia Ortega, in the suburban city of Covina, Los Angeles County, California, U.S. Among the guests were Joe and Alice's five adult children, James, Charles, Alicia, Leticia, and Sylvia, their spouses and their children. A total of 25 to 30 people were gathered at the home for this festive Christmas Eve dinner. It's a big family. That is, yeah. Yeah. The younger kids were either gathered around the pool in the backyard or playing video games in the family room, while one of their oldest grand, uh, one of Joe and Alicia's oldest grandchildren, Michael, was upstairs on the computer. He was 17. That's what teenagers did in 2008. Like in a chat room or something. Probably. Who knows? On chat. Yeah. Emerson Messenger. <laughs> was that 2008 or was that like way before 2008? Oh, I think it was way before. Way before. Oh, probably. Yeah. <laughs> By this time, Facebook was already a year old. What it is today. Because yeah. I mean, most people joined in 2007. So, so around 11.30 p.m., so now it's a half an hour before Christmas Day, there was a knock on the front door. Eight-year-old Katrina, the granddaughter of Joseph and Alicia, and the daughter of their daughter, Leticia, saw Santa Claus standing on the doorstep. She got up and ran to the door screaming, Santa Claus, Santa Claus. And when she opened the door to greet him, he pulled out a nine millimeter semi-automatic oh handgun and shot the eight-year-old girl. You guys are fucking killing in me. In the face. That is the You worst. guys are killing me with these kids. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it was reported that she was shot in the side of the face. Oh, it was total mayhem <clears throat> and chaos. He then turned the gun on the Ortega's two sons, James and Charles. Charles immediately recognized the man in the Santa Claus suit and yelled, It's Bruce, before he was shot by the man called Bruce in the Santa Claus suit. So Bruce was Bruce Pardo, the newly ex-husband of their sister, Sylvia Pardo. They had just finalized their divorce a week before Christmas Eve. However, covered in blood and without knowing the extent of their wounds, it was reported that both James and Charles tried to subdue their ex-brother-in-law by grabbing at him but were unsuccessful. 
Bruce moved along the house, firing shots at all in any partygoers attempting to flee. That's anybody, adults, children, yeah. whoever. Alicia, Joe, and their daughters, Alicia, named after her mom, right. Letisa, Sylvia, and their daughter-in-law, Teresa, all attempted to shield themselves by diving under the dining table where they had not a few hours earlier been enjoying a game of Texas Hold'em. Bruce approached the table and shot five of the six of them execution style, including his ex-wife, Sylvia. Oh my God. Bruce then unwrapped a large gift that he had brought along with him, which contained a compressor that he used to spray gasoline and set the home ablaze. This is so fucking yeah. twisted. He returned to his car, parked out front, with the house now engulfed in flames and changed out of his Santa suit into street clothes. In the chaos of lighting the house on fire, Bruce had sustained some serious burns. So it was speculated that he had planned to flee, but because of the seriousness of his wounds... He got in his car and was later found dead by police by a self-inflicted gunshot <clears throat> wound in his brother's home, a 30-minute drive from the Ortega home. I'm not saying that I see a theme between our yeah. last two stories, yeah. but seeing a theme between our last yeah. two stories. Absolutely. <laughs> Lots of people survived, which is, you know, good. good or bad, but you will be happy to hear that the eight-year-old Katrina was one of the survivors. Oh. oh. So Just, wait, this is the one that opened the door to and Santa? Got, yeah, and got shot in the okay. face. Okay, yeah. wow. so she great that like, she survived, yeah. but now she has to live with that image in her mind um, for the yeah. rest of her fucking life. And, uh, Thanks, Bruce. Yeah. yeah, it's awful. I believe her mother survived as well, which is good. Unfortunately, both of her grandparents, six of her aunts, and her two, her two uncles and one of her cousins were not so lucky. Joseph and Alicia Ortega both were killed by the execution-style gunshot wounds they received while huddled under the table. Four of their children, James and Charles, who had attempted to subdue him, they both succumbed to their gunshot wounds. Sylvia, Bruce Pardo's ex-wife, also didn't survive her gunshot wound, and neither did Alicia Jr. Two of their daughter-in-laws also succumbed to their injuries. Cherry, the wife of Charles, and Teresa, the wife of James. So their children lost both of their parents. Oh my God. And one of their grandchildren, Michael, the one who was upstairs on the computer, he didn't escape the fire. He was not shot as he was upstairs and was not involved in the shooting. But due to an explosion that was caused by the fire, he was later found dead Upstairs so he wasn't shot by nerves. No, but, but he, he did die as a result. He died from... as a result from the house being lit on fire by Bruce. Okay. He was unable to escape. So it was reported that Bruce had no criminal record or any history of violence. It, the motive, like I said, was believed to be the desolation of his marriage to Sylvia, which had been finalized just a week earlier. He had to pay her a ton of child support. But right after that went down, he lost his job as well, mm. which was also what they feel was another trigger. Um, he was no longer required to pay the child support because you don't when you don't have a job, but yep. it eventually catches up with you. Apparently, according to family members, some of the surviving family members, the reason that his marriage to Sylvia ended was because they had only been married for a year when she found out that Bruce had a son from a previous marriage that he never told her about who was disabled, that he had absolutely nothing to do with. Or how long were they together before she found out that the guy that she's seeing has a disabled well, child? Well, they were together, I <laughs> believe. probably leave the guy too. 
they were together. There were three years total, I believe, that they knew each other. They had both previously been married, and that was known. Yeah. Um, none of Sylvia's children, she did have two or three. None of them were his. They were her children from a previous previous marriage. But they were married for a year, almost, when she found out about yeah, his see, son. Yeah, see, that that's he... where the issue lies. Yeah, like, absolutely. You can have a <laughs> child. What you cannot yeah. do is lie to somebody you're in a relationship with about yeah. it. Aside from being lied to about it, didn't want like accept the fact that he had this son who was disabled that he completely abandoned. Yeah. Well, that speaks a lot to character. Absolutely. Red flag, red flag, red flag. Oh, we all know about the red flags. It's like a circus in here. Yeah, well, <laughs> unfortunately, that's the story of the Santa Claus, you know. Well, unfortunately, my next story is not any sunnier. Not that it would be, but it also involves a child and children. So, oh, yes. um, trigger warning. Sorry, guys. This is... Ugh. True crime doesn't even take a break on True the holidays. So, even if your favorite podcasts do... Well, exactly. and if you are blessed enough to just be sitting and listening to these sto stories out of your own enjoyment, take a moment to be grateful for what you got. My story is about a boy named Christy Bamu. Christy. And I chose this case, number one, because Christy and I share a name. But this is a boy, Christy, and I identify as a female. <laughs> okay, thank you for letting thank me know you that. So you looked me dead in the eye when you said that as if I didn't I had know. To. I had to. But um <laughs> Christy Bamu, I I hope I'm pronouncing the last name correct. But uh, he was a 15-year-old boy and he's from London and he and his siblings, had, he had four other siblings. Um they had all gone to Paris to visit their older sister Magalie and her boyfriend Eric Bakubi during Christmas of 2010. Magalie is almost like Megan. So Magalie, I also yeah. relate to one of Megalie your... is a very beautiful name. So is Megan though. Yeah. So is yeah. Angie. So that's Thanks, guys. Thanks for including me. So, um, before I go into what happened Christmas 2010, uh, I want to give you just a little brief background on Eric. So, Eric was born in Congo in 1983, and his mother died during childbirth. And throughout his life, his father had taught him about a type of witchcraft in that area called Kindoki. And um, again, pronunciations. Um, it sounds fun to say, though. Kindoki. Kindoki. Um, so, this type of witchcraft was wildly believed in Congo to be responsible for child possessions. When a child is pointed out usually by a religious leader or an elder as possessing kindoki steps would be taken to rid the child of the evil spirit that was possessing them so just any adult could look at a child and be like <clears throat> they're possessed exactly oh yeah. good yeah kind of like you know the old witch hunts <laughs> uh. so this included beating salvation submissions water deprivation and continuous prayer without food it's believed that during the possession this evil spirit has taken over the child so they are unable to feel the pain from the horrible mutilations and beatings which obviously is not the case mm -mm. So simple things children do are viewed as indications of kendoki possession, such as wetting the bed, biting your nails, and stealing a pencil. I've got all the kendoki because I bite my nails so much. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I checked <clears throat> off all three of those. So. Yeah. You what? You wet the bed? Well, no. <laughs> Sorry. I don't. I don't want the bed. You know you what? Just continue on with the fucking story. God. Never mind. 
We just learned something we didn't know about ATV. <laughs> Very ordinary things with an extremely dangerous consequence would be assumed as kindoki. Much like Magali's family, Eric and his uncle fled Congo in 1990 to escape the war there and settled in London and his uncle would talk more with him about kindoki and witchcraft before he passed away. There was a lot of talk about this kind of witchcraft stuff going on. Throughout their relationship, Magali said that he grew more obsessed with sorcery and witchcraft and began having dreams of his brother killing him. So okay. to rid himself of what he believed to be evil spirits, he moved around London to many different apartments to outrun these spirits, but it didn't work as he wanted it to, so he began consulting Nigerian pastors for help. In early 2020, Eric proposed to Meg Lee, which made her siblings even more excited to come from Paris to London to visit the couple for Christmas. According to Kelly Bakubi, who's a 20-year-old sister, Everything started off well for the first couple of days, but suddenly it turned pretty bad when Eric and Megali began accusing all five of the siblings of being possessed with Kondoki. Oh, oh no. okay. Yeah. So <laughs> I'm not the issue. All of you right. were the yeah. issue. <laughs> so other than Kelly, all the siblings were born and raised in Paris. So they were extremely confused and hut against the accusations. Nevertheless, the torture began. So the siblings were made to pray constantly. They were refused food and drink. They were beaten and Eric even forced them to jump out a window to see if they could fly. Kelly said no matter how much they begged him to stop torturing them, it was clear and his mind was made up and he genuinely believed the siblings had traveled to London to kill him. This was someone they looked up to for protection and safety. Like they're them. During the beating, he involuntarily wet himself. Oh, no. So as a former bedwetter yourself, Brady. <laughs> I was say, I just, I've been there. You understand, yeah. So, um, obviously, pretty easy to wet yourself when you're scared shitless. Absolutely. Once Eric found his underwear, he took this as a sign that Christy was the one who had brought the kunduki into the house, and he began focusing mostly on him, on Christy. Oh, he even encouraged the other siblings to join him. They were forced to restrain Christy while his sister Magalie smashed bathroom tiles on his back. Ugh. hit his hands with a hammer oh, used no. a knife to make cuts all over his body and used pliers to mutilate one of his ears for three and a half days oh, this no. torture continued resulting in 130 separate injuries oh, jesus on the fourth day christmas eve christy was begging and pleading for his sister megaly to just let him die oh this makes me so sad oh yeah Eric began forcing the siblings to clean the blood from the apartment while playing loud music and screaming at them, which led to a noise complaint from a neighbor, but the complaint wasn't followed up on. Oh, of course it wasn't. That's like, oh, the gate was locked. Yeah, I was just going to say that, right? No access. See you later. Later that night, Eric made a call to the kids and Megalie's parents telling them that Christy was possessed and if they didn't come to get Christy, he would kill him. At first, the parents were in disbelief, but they suddenly began panicking, trying to organize a rental for the six-hour car ride from Paris to London. Oh, no. While the parents made this journey, Eric and Megley forced all five children into the bathtub and started hosing them down with icy water as in a cleansing ritual. As a result of three and a half days of torture, alongside the sleep deprivation and 130 injuries christy was mentally and physically exhausted on the 25th of december and his head slipped under the water the couple called the ambulance and the paramedics arrived at the scene taking him to the hospital to resuscitate him but he was already dead 
At 8 p.m. that night, Kelly Van Moo called her father and informed him her little brother, his son, Christy, was dead. Eric and Magley were arrested at once and charged with murder and two counts of actual bodily harm. They both pled guilty to bodily harm on the grounds of diminished responsibility caused by brain damage, but this was rejected and the case had to go to a jury trial. So the jury consisted of seven women and five men, and the judge said due to the gruesome evidence of these horrific crimes that they were excused from serving jury duty ever again. Wow. Eric's defense claimed his brain injury, his cultural upbringing, and schizophrenia diminishes his responsibility for his actions. Magalie's defense argued that she was manipulated as she did not believe in witchcraft. Kelly, however, the 20-year-old sister, testified against her sister and said that she had no pity for her as she spoke of the lack of remorse from her sister while her and her siblings begged her to stop as she brutally beat and tortured them. Eric Bakubi was eventually sentenced to a minimum of 30 years in prison and Magley was sentenced to a minimum of 25 years. The judge told the couple that the case was very sadistic and the belief in witchcraft, however genuine, cannot excuse the assault and killing of any other human being rightfully so yeah. also i take back my excitement for having the same like a similar name to megalie yeah i'm right. kind <laughs> of like it's it's very different than megan that's called knowing the whole story that's no. <laughs> no. That's so awful life lessons children life yes. lessons so, so sad yeah you guys i'm bummed i'm thoroughly bummed out now <laughs> i know me too like i, oh, like, I know just, oh. so my last case for the night is the murder of zizel preston now you guys this is a fairly recent story with the individual just going to prison this year actually zizel preston was a vibrant 26 year old mother daughter and wife zizel was married to william wallace now 39 years old they lived together in their anaheim apartment with their newborn and two children who were then three and eight years old zizel was pursuing her dreams of becoming a domestic violence counselor and was attending college for her degree her desire to help others living with domestic violence was driven partly by her own domestic issues with wallace william wallace had a past of being violent with zizel he has actually already spent several years in jail for attacking her in the past zizel's family would beg and plead with her to leave which unfortunately is all too common in domestic violence homicides really yeah. domestic violence cases yeah. you know uh, this deadly trend claims far too many women and girls across the globe every year. Zizel would even go as far as getting restraining orders against Wallace, but he always had a way of wiggling his way back into her life. On Christmas Eve of 2011, the couple do what many of us have been known to do, get festive and go out to a Christmas Eve party. The couple went over to a neighbor's home for just such party. They would come home later that evening, and neighbors would later claim that they actually heard the couple arguing when they got back. This was typical as they always argued, so alarm bells were not immediately set off after all they were just yelling and they were pretty intoxicated it would be william wallace however that would take this confrontation to a whole other level once inside the walls of their own home zizel's eight-year-old child now 18 would later on in court have to relive this nightmare of an evening oh goodness according to her wallace and zizel come home fighting 
Like always, the verbal altercation soon becomes physical. Wallace would beat Zizel and ultimately push her into a glass table. She would fall. He would then ask his eight-year-old daughter to help him pull pieces of glass from her own mother's body. Jeez. How about no? She continued to testify that her father carried her mother to the bathroom to clean her up. And once there, he dropped Zizel on her head, which hit against the side of the toilet. Now I'm going to read you a quote here from her daughter's actual testimony here. After she hit the toilet, I think she was passed away. He just took her to the bedroom and put her down to sleep while, while she was deceased, the daughter said. Oh my god. That would be so hard to like process as such a young child. Yeah. So it's now Christmas morning. He puts the kids to bed. Nothing happened. Nothing happened. Kids go to bed. Uh, Morning comes. It's Christmas morning. There's an entire tree full of presents downstairs just waiting to be opened by the kids in typical fashion. Goes up, wakes up the kids. Let's go downstairs. We have presents to open. They work their way down and they see their mother sitting on a couch in front of the Christmas tree wearing sunglasses. Now, it's now known that she was deceased by this point. And he would actually tell his children when they asked what was wrong. You guys don't believe this. Oh God, I won't believe it. He actually told his children, Mommy got drunk and ruined Christmas. Oh, oh fuck no. you. Right? Doesn't that just make you oh. want to like head and just like oh, against yeah. something? <laughs> oh yeah. Bounce it off a wall. Like yeah. how dare you? Later that morning, he calls his father and Sizel's grandmother and mother an action which would ultimately trigger and alert authorities to the mayhem that's going down. Right. Orange County District Attorney Todd Spitzer said in a statement, quote, The heartbreak is only exasperated by the fact that her children witnessed much of the violence and were forced to celebrate Christmas in the presence of their dead mother. Jesus Christ. That is not a Christmas memory any child should be forced to have. No. That's fucking twisted. You want to know the piss off about it all, you guys? There's more to piss us off? There's more to piss us off. William Wallace, just this year, was only sentenced 15 years to life in prison. Does this happen in Canada? Excuse me? No, this (laughs) was in Anaheim. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So not in Canada. His poor children. 15 years to life. He was ultimately only convicted of second degree murder. Wow. Oh my god. I guess it probably wasn't premeditated. Child abuse, because like, I'm sorry. Yeah. Dropping their dead mother up on the couch and putting a pair of sunglasses on her. I'm only gonna say I'd say that's like an indignity to a body. Well, no, it it, well, first off it is. And so when I say this next joke, I I don't say it lightly. However, I think someone might have watched too much Weekend at Bernie's. Yeah, yeah. I was thinking Weekend at Bernie's was. Totally and everyone's thinking it. Yeah. I'll just say it. That was another crazy. Ooh, these are getting heavy, guys. Only a little. All right. So my final case for the day, I've chosen to on the days before Christmas, 1987, Ronald Gene Simmons decided to kill his entire family. Oh, another family annihilator. Yes. On the morning of December 22nd, 1987, he shot both his wife, Rebecca, and his son, Gene Jr., with a 22 caliber pistol in their home in Dover, Arkansas. 
he then strangled his three-year-old granddaughter the three bodies and in a cesspit he made his children dig in the days prior to this he then went back in the house and waited for his other children to return home when his children began to arrive he told them he had a gift for them that he would like to give them one at a time so starting with his eldest daughter lorette he strangled her held her head underwater in a rain barrel in a room, like in a separate room from the rest of his children. He then proceeded to do the same with three more of his children, Eddie, Marianne, and Becky. They all went the same way, strangulation, and then drowned in the rain barrel. So personal too, and takes such a long time. Not that I know, but I've heard strangulation takes such a long time. And while this was going on, as he was doing this to each and every one of them, the other ones were just waiting outside for like six, six, six. So around midday on December 26th, the remaining members of the family began to arrive at the home for their annual Christmas visit. He started with his son, Billy, and his son's wife, Renata. He shot them both, then strangled and drowned their son, Trey, and then shot their daughter, Sheila. Oh my God. And her husband, Dennis McNulty. And last but not least, to end Boxing Day, strangled his granddaughter, who it was rumored that he had fathered. Oh my God. That's sickening. Yeah, so he was having sexual relations with his daughter. This has never been proven. Right. It was just a rumor. Yeah. That back in 1987 was never, no DNA tests were ever done, but it was believed that he was the father of his daughter's daughter. Yeah. And uh, his grandson, Michael, as well, he had strangled. So it looks like he strangled most of the the younger kids. Yeah. So to recap, we now have 14 dead people. Holy shit. Dead family members. His wife, Rebecca, his children, Jean Jr., Loretta, Eddie, Marion, Becky, Billy, Billy, Sheila, and uh, his in-law, Renata and Dennis, four of his grandchildren, Trey, Rebecca, Sylvia, and Michael. Unreal. He covered the bodies with coats, with the exception of Sheila, who was the one he had rumored to have a child with. He laid her in state, covered with his wife Rebecca's finest tablecloth. What the fuck? Two of his grandsons, two of his grandsons, so I'm going to guess that it was Trey and Michael, he wrapped in a plastic sheeting and left them in an abandoned car at the end of the street. Oh my god, that's so random. It is random. Like, this guy obviously was not right in the head. Yeah. And we got to remember the first three, his wife and his son, Jean, and his granddaughter were, three-year-old granddaughter, were in a cesspit in yeah. the back. That, right, that they, they dug, dug themselves. themselves. Not just a pit, a cesspit. Yeah. yeah, cesspit. So after this was done, he went to the local bar for some drinks. He later returned to have some more drinks at home and surrounded by his dead family, just sat and watched TV. Jesus. Two days later, on December 28, 1987, Ronald drove to a law office in Russellville and shot and killed a receptionist named Kathy Kendrick. Kathy was a woman that he had been infatuated with who had rejected him. Oh, my God. So he's just gone completely yeah. off the deep end then. He's like, he killed all of his children, his wife, and all of his grandchildren so far. And well, now, and at that point now, what does he? What else does he have to lose? Yeah, so that's a really 
dangerous And now this person. girl that rejected him probably many, many years ago. Yeah. He just walked into the law He's office and shot her. doing in his anger. Yeah. After he left the law office, he drove to an oil company office where he shot a man named J.D. Kafin and wounded the owner, Rusty Taylor. Then he drove to a convenience store he once worked at and shot and wounded two more people. He finally drove to an, the office of Woodline Motor Freight Company and shot and wounded his last victim, ending his killing spree. So now we have two more dead mm -hmm. added to his family, Kathy and JD. So 16 people in, to in total have now been killed and several others wounded. Yeah. He then took a seat while still in the office of the Woodline Motor Freight and casually chatted with the secretary until police arrived and arrested him. Oh my God. When they arrived, he handed over his gun and surrendered without any without incident. Without any incident. Yeah. yeah. So Ronald was charged with 16 counts of murder, pled guilty, was found guilty, and sentenced to death. Good. During Good. his court proceedings, Ronald was quoted to say, and I quote, I, Ronald Jean Simmons Sr., want to be known that it is my wish and my desire that absolutely no action by anyone be taken to appeal or in any way change this sentence. It is further respectfully requested that the sentence be carried out immediately. Unquote. You don't get to fucking decide. Yeah. Like, I'm sorry, but here you are sitting here, like, yeah. still trying to control the situation. So only two and a half years later, May 31st, 1990, Arkansas governor, later President Bill Clinton, signed his execution hmm. warrant. And on June 25th, 1990, he was killed by lethal injection. All right. Well, hi, it's Christy. <laughs> I'm the last story of the night. I'm going to finish off with the Summerton man. Yes. So this one's a really interesting case. Um, there's a lot of speculation. There's um, a lot of theories out there, which we'll go over some of those at the end of the story. Yeah. Let's just dive right in guys. On the evening of November 30th, 1948, a few beachgoers had noticed a man propped up against a concrete seawall on Summerton Beach in Adelaide, Australia. His legs were outstretched and his feet were serenely crossed. Most people just thought that this was just some drunk man, but it struck many as odd, or he struck many as odd, because for one, he wore a full suit and polished shoes, which is an odd choice for the beach <laughs> on a warm summer evening. So again, Definitely. this is November, December in Australia. in Australia, is their summer, right? Yeah. One couple remembers him raising his arm as if drunkenly trying to light a cigarette, and another recalls seeing mosquitoes buzzing around his face and thinking that he's just too drunk to wave them away. But they each believed that the man had too much to drink. But that wasn't the case. The next day, a pair of amateur jockeys are just riding their horses down the beach that morning on December 1st. As jockeys do. As jockeys do. Um, they came across his body and they ended up alerting the police. An initial inspection of the Summerton man, as he began to be known, uh, revealed no obvious cause of death. Like, he was a clean-shaven man. He hadn't been stabbed. Like, he wasn't visibly shot or injured at all. Uh, he had on boxer shorts and a men's singlet and a white shirt and a thin red tie. He wore light brown trousers, a brown sweater, and a brown double-breasted coat. 
his shoes were polished, like I said before, and one of his pockets in his pants was repaired with an unusual type of orange thread that didn't match the pants. And we'll go back to that orange thread in a little bit here. So in his pockets, investigators found a railway ticket to Henley Beach, a bus ticket to North Glenig, uh, an American metal comb, a packet of juicy fruit chewing gum. They also found a packet of Army Club cigarettes, but the packet contained a different brand of cigarettes. Hmm. That's weird. A handkerchief and a packet of Bryant and Nay matches. So the man had athletic legs, like really thick calves. Um, He seemed to be in his 40s or 50s. His forearms were tanned and his toes were oddly mangled as if they'd been shoved into tight shoes. So a lot of people thought because of the toes and because of his very muscular calves that maybe he was a dancer. Um, And in this time, male dancers, ballet dancers, like you had to have, that was the aesthetic. So you had to have those muscly legs. Oh yeah. And that does... Ballet dancing does a number on yeah, your yeah. toe. So strangely, the tags and the labels of the Summerton man's clothes had all been cut off. And investigators found no money, no wallet, no identification on this person. Huh. So at the Royal Adelaide Hospital, Dr. John Barclay Bennett estimated that the time of death was to be no earlier than 2 a.m., the attending pathologist, John Matthew Dwyer, determined that the body had not been moved after death. Dwyer also noted a couple of irregularities. The man's pupils seemed small and unusually shaped. The Summerton man also had blood in his stomach, which, which suggested to Dwyer the presence of some irritant poison. But subsequent tests found no poison in the man's blood. This has led some investigators to believe that the man either digested digitalis and strophanthin <laughs> these two poisons digitalis and strophanthin um they don't actually leave a trace so they're oh. actually like digested very quickly in your body and mm-hmm. they they're just out okay further attempts to identify the man had failed neither the fbi nor the scotland yard had the fingerprints on file and although coroners determined that the Somerton man had died of heart failure, they couldn't come up with why. Like, what caused the heart failure? Why are you looking at me like that? Oh, I'm very intrigued by this story. <laughs> so, police did manage to find the man's abandoned suitcase at the Adelaide Railway Station. It contained the exact same unusual orange thread. So, it's like a spool, a spoolie, a skein of that orange thread and some clothing labeled T Keen and that's K-E-A-N-E or T Keen spelled K-E-A-N. So T dot Keen, but two different spellings. Okay. Mm-hmm. Two articles of clothing had T Keen, T dot Keen, but they were both spelled differently. Oh, okay. Almost okay. as if there was two different people writing right and one thought one it was written one way and another exactly yeah yeah so this however yielded no leads the most baffling clue of all however came several months later a renewed search of the summerton man's possessions revealed a small pocket sewn into the waistband of his pants there investigators found a folded piece of paper that read tamam should now Tamam should is Persian for it's finished or it's ended. Oh, that sounds like a hit or something. Right? Like something that a hitman would leave, like, mm-hmm. 
The words were written in a distinctive script and were found to have been torn from a rare New Zealand edition of the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam. Interesting. It's a hard one to say. Pronunciation. We're just going to call it the Rubaiyat. Okay. It's a 12th century work of poetry. And it should be noted that this is during like the war era. And for some reason, this book was very popular during that time as well in that in that area of australia and new zealand police searched far and wide for a copy of the rubaiyat that matched the distinctive font from the taman shud paper they couldn't find it anywhere until a man came to the police station with a copy to the excitement of the police the last page of the book the part containing tamam shud had been ripped out. But the man who brought the book in claimed that he knew nothing about the poems or the Summerton Man. You see, in December of the previous year, he had told the police that he took a drive with his brother-in-law and he parked a few yards, a few hundred yards away from Summerton Beach. And then when they returned to the car, his brother-in-law noticed a copy of the Rubaiyat uh, on the floor in the back seat. But both men assumed the, belo- the book belonged to the other, so they never made any mention of it to each other. Yeah. And the guy just threw it in his glove box. So it just randomly, yeah. the book yeah. just randomly appeared yeah. in the car, and they were just like, oh, this yeah. must be his. But it's- I just want to like circle back for a second here. So the Taman should mm. was not actually written. It was typed... Right. Okay, sorry, I misunderstood. Yeah, there's copies I, of it. Yeah, yeah, so it was an actual, like, but hey, this, like a sentence ripped out of the book. Right, but the script okay. that was used, was, like, yeah, or so the font, that. sorry. That's, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, I got exactly. confused, because I was like, wasn't, like, handwritten. No. Okay. No, no, no. So, but when the national coverage of the Summerton Man had begun to circulate, the two men took a closer look at the book and realized it was the one that the police were looking for. Inside the book, Detective Sergeant Lionel Lean found two unlisted phone numbers and a faint lines of code the first phone number was a dead end but the second phone number led to a young nurse named jessica ellen or joe thompson who lived on summerton beach thompson was reluctant to speak to the police so she eventually admitted to having gifted a copy of it to a man named alfred boxall when the adelaide police pursued this lead they discovered that boxall was very much alive and had thompson's copy in his possession Though Thompson claimed that she didn't know the Summerton man, police reported that she reacted strangely to seeing a plaster cast of his face and almost fainted. So what they had done before, because they were running out of leads and they had to bury him. So they embalmed him and they took a plaster cast of his face in like a bust form so that they could still use that for like visual identification for people. So with that lead seemingly exhausted, police turned to the faint code in the book. So under a black light, they could make out a strange jumble of letters which read um now it's a jumble of letters and there's like a couple of lines worth of them i'm not going to read them off to you because it's a short story but rest assured we will post the code on our socials mm-hmm. so take a look at that now they did send this code to naval intelligence in Australia, and they couldn't even crack the code. Lacking more leads to pursue, the police lay the Summerton man to rest on June 14, 1949. Again, not before making a cast bust form to assist in continuing the case later on. So when the South Australia coroner published the final results of his investigation in 1958, his report concluded with the omission that, quote, I am unable to say who the deceased was, and I am unable to say how he died or what was the cause of his death, end quote. 
quote. The first popular theory was that the Somerton man killed himself after being rejected by Thompson. Some have suggested that Thompson, who died in 2013, due to similarities in their appearance. The more provocative theory, however, is that the Somerton man was a spy that knew too much. So his death struck many investigators as highly unusual, especially if he was indeed killed by deadly poisons that disappear. Hmm. And the also wonder if Thompson, Joe Thompson, was also a spy. So her family that she had later on in life had said that she was, she acted really weird about this whole story and everything. And definitely her, like her daughter thought that like she's there definitely hiding something. something she's yeah. not. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Shame on her Not for mentioning. going to her death without opening yeah. up about it. Supporting the series, the fact that no one came to claim the body despite publicity around the case, plus the indecipherable code and confounding nature of the meaning of Taman Shed seem like something out of a spy novel. Like this yeah. whole story plays like a spy novel. Also, this whole code that can't be cracked, to that I say challenge accepted right oh, <laughs> could you imagine i'll if see we you guys in 2022 i'll figure it out <laughs> yeah. so weirder clues have also been found since the summer two man was laid to rest retired australian policeman jerry feltis who wrote the only book yet published on the case discovered a witness in 1950 who said that they had seen one man carrying another on his shoulder on that night of november 30th 1948 so could this have been one drunk friend helping another out or could it have been the summer two man's killer finishing the job the investigation mm. has also since been picked up by thompson's own daughters so again this would be the daughter that i said suspects uh -huh. that something's a little bit off yeah. Yeah. um they suggest that they could be related to the summerton man and that both he and their mother could have been involved in a soviet spy ring the world may get some answers soon though because in may 2021 the body of the summerton man was exhumed and oh, will be tested yes! for dna only time will tell whether those results will finally close the time I'm shut. One of the things that really perplexes me about this story, one of many, many things, is that where he was found, yeah. propped up, facing out towards the ocean, yeah. it was like somebody wanted him to see something beautiful as he was dying. Yeah. The ocean. That's what I was saying. Like, it's super weird. Like, whoever it was. Yeah, it's weird as well. I don't know. But definitely an interesting case for sure yeah this all one, of these have been yeah. really interesting cases and you know I, I do wish that we could go into them in a little bit more in depth but we're here to give you short stories today on this christmas special we hope that you enjoyed the 12 cases that we brought to you yeah. uh i just want to wrap up this episode want to wish everybody a very safe and happy and healthy holidays absolutely i hope you have a merry christmas and a festivus for the rest of us also um obviously a lot of the topics that we touched on over the last couple of days um are pretty traumatizing and obviously i think as we had talked and have been talking that there there is a theme and you know there's many stressors that we all deal with in life and especially over the holidays those can be amplified so if you or somebody you know is having a difficult time over the holidays please get the help that you need reach out to a loved one uh, we will obviously be sharing some resources and links in the show notes for you guys please take care of yourselves and take care of each other you can uh, also reach us on our socials we are yes. on tiktok at homebrew murder crew we are on instagram at homebrew murder crew and we are on facebook at homebrew murder crew you can also reach out and email us at homebrew murder crew at gmail.com 
thank you so much you guys for joining us these last couple of days and we look forward to when's our next episode the new year we're gonna, gonna be, be recording our next episode before the new year but it won't be released until you'll the new hear year. from us in 2022 2022, 2022. merry christmas everybody and happy, happy new, new year, year. bye, bye. bye.